ABC developed a television program that became an immediate critical and commercial success. It's called Lost. And this program begins uh, in the aftermath of a plane crash where uh, the, the surviving passengers find themselves stranded on this mysterious tropical island. Uh, in its first few seasons, Lost averaged somewhere around 15 million viewers per episode. So many of you have probably seen this show, you're at least familiar with it. Uh, with each season, the show's mysteries grew a little more complicated, and uh, the viewers grew increasingly frustrated at this complex mythology that the show was based on. But the program endured because in the end, people were deeply invested in what happened to these characters. See, in the end, Lost was a show about relationships. And the producers even telegraphed the, the thesis of the entire series early on with an episode entitled, Live Together, Die Alone. That became something of a mantra throughout that program. And it seems as if stories like this one that captivate the the hearts and the minds and the imaginations of millions, literally millions of viewers on a weekly basis. They all eventually return back to this concept that we are discussing here on Sunday mornings now, this deeply biblical idea that joy is found not necessarily in the journey itself, but that joy comes in knowing those who are journeying alongside of us. And that leads us to, to think about where we are now in this series. For several weeks now, we've been talking about the nine, your cloud of witnesses. And for, for several weeks, we've been looking at these different biblical characters who represent relationships that are a part of our cloud of witnesses. This, these, these are cloud nine relationships, we might say. And so just you think back over the last few weeks, we began by talking about Jonathan. And we noted that he is a good friend to King David. And each of us in our own lives, we're looking for those good covenant relationships, those covenant friendships that we can rely on. A few weeks ago, we, we turned our attention to Barnabas. And if you'll remember, we said that each of us, no matter where we might find ourselves in the spectrum of life, we're in need of constant encouragement. It's just one of those principles of life. Every one of us needs a relentless encourager in our lives. And then last week, we turned our attention to Deborah. We said not only is Deborah a source of godly wisdom, but what makes her story so powerful is that she chooses to be a companion for Barak. She comes alongside of him, and so she is that source of good godly counsel. And as we've been asking now for several weeks, the questions were, okay, who is the Deborah in your life, and to whom has God called me to be a Deborah? So now today, we, we're ready for one more entry in this series. Uh, we turn our attention now to what may be for some a, a seemingly minor character in the pages of Scripture. I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon based on this particular character, much less preached one myself, but I would suggest to you this morning that the individual that we are talking about today, he or she is one of the most important members of your cloud of witnesses. Today we turn our attention to the biblical character of Epaphras, and we can, re we can read about Epaphras in the book of Colossians. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, we'll read in Colossians here in just a moment. I have these passages up on the screen as well. But we'll focus today on what we can learn about Epaphras from Paul's letter to the Colossians. Early on in his letter, right there up front in chapter 1, Paul uh, 
begins with, with a word of, of, of welcome. He begins in kind of his customary fashion. But he, he says that Epaphras uh, is the one who first shared the good news of the gospel with these brothers and sisters in Colossae. Colossians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. This is what the word says. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. You learned it, it being the gospel, you learned it from Epaphras. And look at how Paul describes him. Our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Now, Paul clearly holds Epaphras in high esteem, doesn't he? I mean, you can just tell from this verse alone, from the one on the screen, you can see the language Paul uses. He holds Epaphras in a, in a place of high esteem. He says to him, he refers to him as a fellow servant, and literally that word is slave. It's the word that Paul often uses to describe himself, that he has, is now in bondage to Christ, okay? So he sees Epaphras fulfilling that same kind of role. So he is a fellow servant, but also this, he is a faithful minister in your midst. Again, Epaphras is something of a spiritual father to these Colossian believers. He first shared the good news of Jesus with them, and then he spends his time faithfully ministering in their presence for a certain period of time. All of that we glean about Epaphras from the beginning of Colossians. But now we pivot, and toward the end of the letter, as Paul wraps up, he sends some greetings, he has some more personal kind of remarks there toward the end of Colossians. And at the end of this letter, we learn that Epaphras not only shared the good news with these believers, but he is present with Paul at the time of this writing. At the time that Paul writes, Epaphras is with him, and he sends his greetings to these Colossians. And so in these concluding remarks, we'll look at this in Colossians chapter 4 now, but this is the place where we learn something that, that I find to be really fascinating about Epaphras and what makes Epaphras such an essential part of our cloud of witnesses. Look here in Colossians 4 now, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. And now look at this. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. So that, that phrase that really stands out to me about Epaphras from this passage is that Epaphras is a person of prayer, he is a man of prayer, but in particular, the, the phrase that jumps off the page at me is the fact that he is wrestling in prayer for you. In your cloud of witnesses, you need an Epaphras. You need one who is wrestling in prayer. Not just praying for you, but one who wrestles in prayer for you. Now imagine you're one of those early believers. Imagine you're, you're in that little church there in Colossae, and, and you receive this letter from Paul, and so you, you unroll it, you unroll the scroll, and you begin to read it, and you come to this word, and he's reminding you about Epaphras, and he says, Epaphras is the one, who, the one who shared the gospel with you. He is wrestling in prayer for you. How would you feel 
if you heard that someone was wrestling in prayer for you. I don't know about you, but when I hear about Epaphras, and I hear this language used to describe this, this man of spiritual intensity, I feel like I'm missing out on my prayer life. I feel like he could teach me a thing or two about how to pray because I'm not sure that I could ever say that I, I'm, I'm wrestling in prayer for someone or for something. But to hear that from Epaphras, Epaphras, he makes prayer a contact sport, right? A picture of Epaphras, he's, he's engaging his entire body, you know, he's on bended knee and he's, he's sweating and he's really putting energy and effort and willpower into that prayer. He is literally wrestling in prayer over these believers. And so we asked the question this morning, who is your Epaphras? Who is your prayer wrestler from the few references we have of epaphras in the new testament it, it emerges he emerges pretty quickly as as a man of spiritual intensity so we see here he's wrestling in prayer in the very next verse colossians 4 13 uh, the new american standard bible points this out it points out there's kind of a, a textual variant the translators have to decide okay how should we translate this so it, it looks as if you have two options that either Paul is saying in the very next verse that Epaphras has a deep concern for these believers, or that what he's trying to say is that he has great pain that he is experiencing on behalf of these believers. And the scholars say that there's great evidence in the manuscripts that point toward the latter, that what Paul is saying is that Epaphras is deeply pained. He's experiencing pain for these believers. In fact, it's that pain that is fueling his prayer on their behalf. It's his pain that causes him to wrestle over these believers in prayer. So it seems as if what Paul is doing, is he's, he's alluding to that. One of the reasons that Paul even writes to these believers is that there is a, a false doctrine that is heavily influencing many in the life of this church. And so Paul writes to them to try and combat that false teaching, to, to provide a corrective to that. And it's as if he gets to this point toward the end. He says, okay, hey, and don't, don't forget, Epaphras, he's with me and he sends greetings. But he is wrestling over prayer, over you in prayer. He is, he is hurt. He loves you so much that the news that this false teaching is leading some of you astray, it actually hurts him. It's causing him great pain. And it is out of that place of pain that Epaphras, Paul says, is wrestling for these believers in prayer. And that leads us to a, a fairly interesting point of application here. Your Epaphras is very likely someone in your life who has experienced great pain. It's someone, you can look to them and you know that either he or she has experienced a, a great amount of, of pain in their life. And, and the Epaphras in your life is capable of wrestling for you in prayer because he or she has wrestled with something else in their life something significant there was a moment in their life where they were wrestling with something something that caused pain whether that's grief or resentment or, or doubt or disappointment anger fear there are so many ways that that we could find ourselves wrestling but but your Epaphras has been through that and has come out the other side they've lived to tell the story and so because he or she has been to that place where they've wrestled, they've been to the depths, they are now able to leverage that same sort of spiritual intensity in their prayer life 
for you. So again, let me ask, who is the Epaphras in your life? And to whom has God called you to be an Epaphras? Paul's choice of terms here certainly would have resonated with the Jewish Christians in Colossae. At the very least, it would have called to mind another biblical episode, the story of Jacob wrestling with God on the banks of the Jabbok River. Some of you will remember that story. It's, it's nighttime and Jacob is alone just before meeting his brother Esau for the first time in years. And in the stillness of that night, this man approaches Jacob and he and Jacob begin to wrestle. And it's only until later that Jacob realizes he's been wrestling with the Lord God himself. But they wrestle all night and at daybreak, God, the man, God, turns to Jacob and he says, let go of me. And Jacob refuses. He refuses to let go because Jacob is tenacious. In fact, that's the one positive thing you can really say about Jacob. He refuses to let go. From the time he is born, what is he doing? He's latching onto that brother's heel, right? And in this episode, he's doing the same thing. He won't let go. And so God says, really, Jacob, I need to leave. And so he proves to Jacob that he, I guess, really just been toying with him all along. God reaches down and he touches Jacob's hip socket and knocks it out of location. He dislocates that hip socket. And still Jacob won't let go. Still Jacob holds on. He says, I will not let go of you until you bless me. And the Lord God says, okay, no longer will you be called Jacob, but now you will be known as Yisrael, for you have contended with God. You have struggled with God. You have wrestled with God. And so presumably for the rest of his days, Jacob walks around with a limp as a memory of that night that he wrestled with God and lived to tell the story. But more importantly than that, he lives the rest of his days with a new name. He's called Israel, the one who contends with God. And that becomes the namesake for the people of God. They're not known as Abrahamites. They're not known as Isaac. They're known as Israelites. The people of God take that name upon themselves because they understood themselves as ones wrestling and contending with God. And that's a helpful point of reference for us because Paul uses similar language when he speaks of Epaphras here in Colossians. When, when Paul says that Epaphras wrestles in prayer, he uses a Greek word, agonizomai. You see it on the screen there. It means to struggle. It means to contend with. It means to wrestle. It comes to us in English just as a straight transliteration. We receive that word as agonize. So quite literally, what Paul says to the, uh, to the Colossians, he says, Epaphras, he literally agonizes over you in prayer. He is agonizing for you believers in prayer. His prayers are fueled by his pain. And that pain is agony for these believers. Have you ever agonized over something in prayer? For many of us, that calls to mind the picture of Christ in the garden just before his arrest. Just prior to that arrest, Jesus prays this prayer. He says, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup, but yet not my will, not my will, but yours be done. That is the gold standard of prayer in the New Testament. There is no other prayer more important than that prayer. I would suggest to you this morning that that prayer 
which, which, is, which is referenced more in the New Testament than any other prayer, that prayer is the determining factor in our lives. That our lives will be measured to the degree which we can also pray that same prayer. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And in the aftermath of that prayer, Luke gives us some really important details. He says in Luke 22, verse 44, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. That word translated anguish in this text. It's the same root word that Paul uses to describe the agony of the prayers of Epaphras. And I think we're meant to see a connection here. That Epaphras prays like Jesus. That Epaphras on his knees, Epaphras in agony, he is praying like Jesus prayed right there in the garden. He is so pained for this church that he helped found. He is so pained for these sisters and brothers within whom he planted the gospel seed. He hurts so deeply for them that he prays like Jesus prayed in the garden. He agonizes, he wrestles for them in prayer. So again, who is your Epaphras? Who agonizes over you in prayer? And, and over whom do you agonize when you pray? A prayer wrestler like Epaphras is a rare commodity. If you can identify that Epaphras right now, you, you should count yourself blessed. Prayer sleepers, on the other hand, are a dime a dozen. A prayer sleeper, that's, that's the Peter, James, and John way of praying. You go back to the garden on that fateful night. As Jesus is praying this prayer, he's asking his friends, hey, will you join me and will you pray? And he keeps coming back to them and he finds them doing what? He finds them asleep. And I do the same thing. And you probably do too. I do the same thing every single time that I say with the best of intentions to someone, I'll be praying for you. But I never get around to actually saying that prayer. In a culture like ours, it is really easy to use the pray for Vegas hashtag this week without ever actually praying for Las Vegas. But Epaphras, Epaphras does more than just talk a good game when it comes to prayer. Epaphras is the one who, who knows and understands that the prayer closet is the place place where the real battle takes place. Your Epaphras is dangerous. Your Epaphras is a secret weapon in your cloud of witnesses because your Epaphras knows how to weaponize prayer. <laughs> your Epaphras is, is, is dangerous because your Epaphras is changing your life whether you realize it or not. Because let's face it, prayer is the most powerful activity in the universe, right? And your Epaphras is leveraging the most powerful activity in the universe on your behalf. So if someone is praying for you like Epaphras does, if someone is agonizing over you, if someone is wrestling over you in prayer, you are probably experiencing spiritual transformation in ways you don't even recognize yet. They're changing your future. I love the way that the author Leonard Sweet puts it. He says, before you unleash the power of an Epaphras, listen to this, he says, make sure you're ready to give up who you are for who you might become. 
You're Epaphras is weaponizing prayer, but to this end, on your behalf. Those prayers are focused on you very, very specifically. Your Epaphras is praying for some very specific spiritual outcomes in your life. And if that Epaphras is praying those kinds of specific prayers, you are probably going to experience some very specific spiritual transformation. I love the insight Paul gives us into the prayer life of Epaphras. Again, he says that he's always wrestling in prayer for you, but look at this. He says he's praying that you would stand firm in all the will of God, that you would be mature and that you would be fully assured. So Epaphras, just like Jesus before him, he prays for the will of God to be done. But here's what's unique about Epaphras. Epaphras is praying that the will of God would be done in you. And that's a bold prayer. Epaphras is praying that that you would be mature, that is, spiritually mature, and that's a bold prayer. And the Epaphras in your life is praying that you would be fully assured. Epaphras wants you to know that the promises of God are rock solid, and that too is a bold and dangerous prayer. So who is boldly praying that you would experience God like this? Who is boldly praying that the will of God would be done in your life? Who is agonizing right now over your spiritual maturity? Who is intensely contending with God right now that he would keep his promises to you? Who's praying for you this morning? And for whom are you praying? I love this quote from the author Walter Wink. He says, intercession is spiritual defiance of what is. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. And I might add one little line, those who pray the future into being. Who is your Epaphras that has prayed God's future into being in your life. The Epaphras in my life is my mother. She wrestled in prayer for me long before I was ever born. At one point in my life, my mother was told that she would not be able to conceive again. But my mom had a lot of Jacob in her. She was tenacious and she held on. And I'm grateful. Grateful that she placed more stock in her faith in God rather than the expert opinion of that individual who told her that my mother had a lot of epaphras in her too she wrestled in prayer for me and for 12 long years uh, hoping against hope she wrestled in prayer for me before i was ever even born and it's funny how some of the most important events in your life can take place years before you even exist just proof, guys, that we're a part of a bigger story than we ever possibly could imagine. Without a doubt, my mother is one of the most important members of my cloud of witnesses because she is my Epaphras, because she was my prayer wrestler, because she was the one who prayed my future into being. It's a question for you. Who is your Epaphras? And to whom has God called you to be a prayer wrestler?